Hello and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes and this is episode 61 called The Sack of Rome Part 2. In the last episode, we left the Emperor Maximus, who overthrew and killed Valentinian III, being ripped to pieces by the Roman mob as Geyseric, King of the Vandals, docked at Ostia, Rome's main port, ready to march on the Eternal City. But before we hear about the Vandals' sack of Rome, we need to catch up on what the Vandals have been doing while Attila dominated events in continental Europe. For the Vandals have been in Attila's shadow for the last decade, but now they would once again take centre stage in Roman history. So let's go back to the beginning of their African adventure. And you'll remember that it was back in 429 that Geyseric led the Vandals from Spain into North Africa across the Straits of Gibraltar. Advancing east along the African coastline, the Vandals met and defeated the Roman garrison army led by Bonifacius outside the city of Hippo Regis. But their siege skills were far short of their skills on the battlefield, and Hippo Regis held out for 14 months, during which time its most famous inhabitant died, the 75-year-old Saint Augustine, author of the famous City of God, one of the most influential religious works ever written. Their advance was not just checked by the city's walls, but more importantly by the arrival of an eastern Roman army, led by the capable general Aspar. Although Geyseric defeated Aspar in a battle outside Hippo Regius and took the city, the eastern Romans seem to have inflicted heavy casualties on the Vandals, sufficient for them to agree to a peace settlement in 435, in which they gave up any aspirations to taking the great city of Carthage and its rich hinterland. Although Aspar couldn't defeat the Vandals, he'd saved the most important part of North Africa from falling into their hands. The Eastern Empire had literally come to the rescue of its Western cousin and saved the vitally important tax revenues from Carthage, which Aetius desperately needed to pay his army as it battled for Gaul. But Aetius made a grave mistake. He relied too much on the Eastern Empire to defend North Africa, as he used the West's scarce resources, fighting to protect his own personal fiefdom in Gaul. And it was at this point that the growing power of the Huns intervened, for in 433, Aspar was recalled to the Danube front to face a new Hunnic threat. Geyseric saw his opportunity. In October 439, after four and a half years of peace, he made a grab for Carthage. The Romans were caught napping. There were too few troops from both the east and west to stop him taking the city. The Vandal attack was also apparently helped by some of the inhabitants of Carthage who were disgruntled at the heavy taxes they paid to Ravenna without receiving any benefit. For them, Vandal rule seemed to offer a better future than Roman. It was a catastrophic blow for the Western Empire, which lost one of its most valuable sources of tax revenues. 
I think the key point with the Vandal capture of Carthage is that it wouldn't have happened without the Huns threatening the Eastern Empire, since when the Hun threat on the Danube receded in 440, Constantinople dispatched an armada, the first of three such initiatives over the next hundred years, to retake North Africa. More than a thousand eastern ships arrived in Sicily and joined a western land army led by Aetius. But the expedition never set sail for Africa, and the reason was yet again the Huns. This time it was serious. As we discussed in episode 53, Attila and his brother Blader were turning the screw on the East Romans, demanding ever more gold from them. The army sent to Sicily to fight Geyseric was recalled. For the next nearly three decades, Constantinople focused on the Balkan front, first to combat Attila and then to contain the seismic eruption of barbarian invasions following the implosion of the Hunnic Empire. In desperation, the Western Empire sought peace with Geyseric on almost any terms. Our sources are vague about what really happened, but it seems that in 442, a significant peace treaty was agreed with Geyseric, in which he was admitted into the empire as Rex Socius et Amicus, meaning allied king and friend. He was granted full control of Carthage in exchange for the resumption of the grain supply to Italy, which had been cut. Most extraordinarily of all, his son, Huneric, was sent to Rome as a hostage and then betrothed to marry Valentinian's eldest daughter, Eudocia, when she reached maturity, since she was probably only three or four years old in 442. It's often overlooked in accounts of this period that during the rest of the 440s and up until Valentinian's death, Geyseric was quite happy with this entente cordiale with Rome, and for the next 13 years, peace reigned in the Western Mediterranean. By the way, for those unfamiliar with the expression entente cordiale, this was used to describe the change that took place in the late 19th century when Britain and France, who had been implacable enemies for centuries, became allies, mainly as a response to the growing threat which Germany posed. And I think it's a term that's quite suitable for the Vandal-Roman rapprochement in the middle of the 5th century, since it reflected a fundamental change of heart by Geyseric for three reasons. The first was that peace with Rome was profitable for the Vandals. The supply of grain to Italy resumed, which had always been a staple of the North African economy. In addition, Africa had long been an exporter not just of grain, but of pottery, wine and olive oil. And during the 440s, some of this trade continued, enriching the Vandal court and nobility. A second point was that Geyseric wanted to deflect attention in the Roman world, especially the gaze of Constantinople. The eastern fleet, which had speedily set sail in 440, showed that the eastern empire was only too alert to the threat the Vandals posed in the Mediterranean. And at this point, Geyseric wanted peaceful cooperation, not confrontation. 
The third and most intriguing reason is Geiserich's apparent desire for acceptance by the imperial court at Ravenna, and indeed more than just acceptance, for he harboured ambitions to join the imperial family. This centred on his son, Huneric's betrothal to Valentinian's daughter Eudocia, which was agreed as part of the seminal Treaty of 442. This betrothal merits our attention, since it later became a reason for the Vandal attack on Rome. Our sources are vague, but piecing together the meagre evidence we have. As mentioned in episode 52, we think that Huneric was originally married to an unnamed daughter of Theodoric, king of the Goths, at some point in the 430s, cementing a Vandal-Gothic alliance. However, this marriage ended when Theodoric's daughter was returned to him, disfigured with her nose slit, on the grounds that she tried to poison Huneric. The timing of this is unclear, but presumably it happened before the Treaty of 442, when it's recorded that Huneric was sent as a hostage to Ravenna and betrothed to Eudocia. But there are lots of gaps in our information. We don't know how long Huneric stayed at Ravenna. All we know is that he was certainly back in Carthage by 455. And because of this lack of information, historians have come up with a host of theories about what was really going on. One is that Huneric was sent as a hostage in return for Eudocia also being sent to Carthage as a hostage. But when she didn't appear, in order to keep the peace, it was agreed that they would be betrothed instead, and Huneric was released to return to Carthage. This actually seems quite a likely explanation to me, but the key point was that this betrothal was taken very seriously by Geiseric. In contrast, our limited Roman references describe only embarrassment that a barbarian was considered suitable for an imperial princess. Of course, this Roman indignation ignored the precedent that had been established when Galla Placidia was abducted from Rome in 410 and married Atulf, Alaric the Goth's son. But leaving that aside, one question we need to ask is why was Geyseric so intent on this marriage and what did he really want from it? And to answer that question, I think we need to look at what was going on with the Vandal occupation of North Africa. For one of the most striking things was that they must have been heavily outnumbered by the indigenous Romans. Historians think there were somewhere between one to three million Romans in Africa, compared with only about a 100,000 Vandals. So, the Vandals presumably were worried they could be overwhelmed. And we have some evidence that because of this, they tried hard to get the ordinary Romans on their side. For example, when they took Carthage, our sources suggest they appealed to the mass of ordinary Romans to rise up against their masters, and their request apparently met with approval, since many of the poorer Romans disliked the Western government, which taxed them without returning any benefits. And they also resented the Roman senators, who were often absentee landlords, owning much of the land in North Africa, but not investing the income in the local economy, and instead expropriating it to do things like build their grand houses in Rome. 
So the Vandals wanted to keep the African Romans on their side, and to do that they left most of the apparatus of Roman administration and government unchanged. We know this from the accounts left to us by the 6th century Roman chronicler Procopius, who recorded in great detail the Roman reconquest of North Africa under the Emperor Justinian and his general Belisarius in 533. When the Eastern Romans reconquered it, they found that the province of Africa was not reduced to rubble at all. In fact, it was still very prosperous. The only real difference was that it was ruled by the Vandals, not the Romans. And because of this, I just mentioned that some historians developed the theory, very popular in academic circles until recently, that the fall of the Roman Empire was a largely peaceful event. And in Africa, it does seem to have been just that. But in places like Britain, Gaul, Spain and even Italy, it certainly wasn't and there was a catastrophic collapse in living conditions caused by the barbarian invasions. And that's a subject we'll come back to in a future episode. So we can say that Huneric's betrothal to Eudocia was a big deal for the Vandals because they were ruling a quasi-Roman state. Indeed, one historian has suggested that the marriage was especially significant because the Vandals' hierarchy, similar to many of the Germanic political structures, was relatively democratic, and this meant that there were plenty of other Vandal nobles vying to be king, and it was not guaranteed at all that Huneric would automatically succeed his father Geiseric. However, if he was married to the imperial princess Eudocia, this would be a very compelling reason to make him king. So, let's now rejoin our narrative. The date is March 455. Valentinian has been killed. Maximus has seized power. As I said in the last episode, some of our sources say that the Empress Eudocia herself sent messengers to Geiseric protesting that she was being forced against her will to marry Maximus, and rather more relevantly for Geiseric that Maximus's son Palladius was going to marry her daughter, the same one who was betrothed to Huneric. By the way, let me just say that I completely agree with you that it's confusing that mother and daughter were both called Eudocia, although the empress's name was spelt with an X while the daughter's was spelt with a C, so they are slightly different on paper, if that helps at all. Now, this was a bolt from the blue for Geiseric. Having enjoyed 13 years of peace, his world was suddenly turned upside down. The peace treaty of 442 was effectively dead. Huneric wasn't going to marry Eudocia anymore, and Geiseric wasn't going to take this lying down. So he decided to attack Rome. Why Rome? The answer is probably that he'd heard the city was poorly defended. As you know, the Roman army had, in any case, largely ceased to exist in the Western Empire in its traditional form. But on top of that, what few Roman soldiers were left had been sent north to guard the Italian border with Illyria. Since when Valentinian murdered Aetius, the Roman governor of Illyria, Marcellinus, who was a supporter of Aetius, had revolted against Valentinian. This left the city of Rome almost without a garrison. And that was still the case even when Valentinian had been murdered. So this was simply too good an opportunity to miss for Geiseric. 
But even then, some historians think he didn't want to actually sack Rome. All he wanted was to appear outside the city and demand the things he wanted, just as Alaric the Goth had done this twice before he actually sacked the city. But as you know, events took a different course. Maximus panicked. In fact, most of the inhabitants of Rome panicked. And when Geiseric's ships docked at Ostia in late May 455, there was a widespread exodus from the city. And as recounted in the last episode, Maximus was killed by the mob. Rome was now an open city, and Geiseric reached the Aurelian Walls on the 2nd of June. Without an emperor or a general to defend it, the remaining inhabitants turned to the man who'd allegedly saved the city from Attila the Hun in 452. This was, of course, Leo, the Bishop of Rome, who went to meet the Vandal King in front of the city walls. It's hard to know how much to believe of what the Christian writers say about Leo, but he certainly seems to have been a very courageous man. Prosper of Aquitaine recorded, quote, Holy Bishop Leo met Geiseric outside the gates, and his supplication mollified him through the power of God to such an extent that, when everything was given into his hands, he was held back from burning, killing, and torture. End quote. The Vandals occupied Rome for 14 days, and it seems that they were true to their word and avoided wanton destruction and violence. There's no archaeological evidence that the city was damaged in the way that Attila meted out destruction to Aquileia and Milan. And I think this is understandable, because the Vandals thought of themselves as quasi-Romans. They didn't want to destroy Rome, they wanted its wealth. Anything worth stealing was taken, according to the chronicler Malchus, quote, even the bronze statues. So they took as many valuables from the city as possible, including, we are told, the gold-plated copper roofing of the Temple of Jupiter, which they mistakenly thought was solid gold. But most important of all was their human treasure trove. This included some senators and, quote, the Empress Eudocia herself, who had summoned Geiseric, her daughter Placidia, the wife of the patrician Alibrius, who then was staying at Constantinople, and even the maiden Eudocia. After he had returned, Geiseric gave Eudocia to his son Huneric in marriage, and he held them both, the mother and daughter, in great honour. So Geiseric stole the imperial family, and I think this is testimony to his wish to join the Roman world, not to destroy it. When the Vandals returned to Carthage, Huneric married Eudocia, and soon she gave birth to a son, Hilderic. Naturally, neither Ravenna nor Constantinople recognised Huneric's marriage, nor the existence of Hilderic. In particular, nobody wanted to admit that Hilderic and any further sons Huneric and Eudocia had would have a claim to the throne of the Western Empire. And to make matters worse, just at that moment, there was no emperor in the West at all. Maximus was dead, and chaos reigned in Italy. But the Western Empire was not quite finished, and as its last days drew near, 
a new emperor would seize power and make one last attempt to restore the Empire of the West, and his name was Majoria. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, of course, I'd be delighted for any ratings or reviews in whichever podcast app you use. And if you want to hear more about the Romans, please visit my website at nickholmesauthor.com. And also, please do look up on Amazon my latest book called The Fall of Rome, which covers the sack of Rome in AD 410 by Alaric the Goth. And in the next episode, be prepared for a surprise as the Western Empire goes on the offensive in a last attempt to regain its lost glory. Thanks for listening and see you next time. (laughs) 